0: I'm Kathy Joller
1: And I'm Dan Chifrin.
0: And this is The Space Between, Dispatches from the Contemporary Jewish Museum. The Space Between examines the places between traditions, ideas, and cultural practice where creativity happens. We're delighted to have with us today Carrie Perloff, Artistic Director of San Francisco's American Conservatory Theater. A scholar who was previously on the faculty of Tisch School of the Arts at New York University, Carrie Perloff is perhaps best known for directing innovative productions of classics and championing new writing for the theater. Perloff was previously artistic director of the Classic Stage Company, which won a 1988 Obie Award for artistic excellence under her leadership. She is also a playwright, whose works include The Colossus of Rhodes*, Luminescence Dating, Waiting for the Flood, and Higher, which will receive its world premiere in February 2012. Perloff's creative output is full of examples of in-between, including scholarship and art, classic and contemporary, and speech and silence. So Carrie, welcome.
2: Thank you.
1: So I wonder if we could start with um, the speech and silence dichotomy. Um, Your play Hire is about to receive its world premiere. And um, this play is, among other things, about an architecture competition in Israel that is designed to commemorate uh, victims of terrorism. So one of the characters in your play says that perhaps the best memorial is to do nothing and to say nothing. And I'm wondering, as a writer and as a director, whether there are some subjects that people shouldn't talk about or whether um there is not such a subject and it's really just about how it's spoken about that matters
2: yes i think the latter i mean i i, I think it would be a, a, a tragedy to say that there are areas of human inquiry or experience that are off limits to dialogue but um but one of the things the play is about is about memory and memorializing. And that is sort of a different question. Uh, as As Harold Pinter said, there are two kinds of language. One is a torrent of words and one is silence. And sometimes silence is the most communicative kind of dialogue. And sometimes the absence of intervention is its own form of grace. So in thinking about uh, this play, but also in, I've done a lot of research in thinking about memorials, um, There are two kind of opposing theories about memorials. One is that a memorial should be like a shard of glass that always challenges you to remember. It cuts into you in some way that you continually remember. Um, And the opposite is that a memorial is is, um, like a garden or like something that heals over time, that grows over time, and that that um, silence, in a sense, is the most curative. And neither is right. It depends on how you look at history. Silence can be death. We learned this in the AIDS epidemic, not speaking can be a terrible thing, or not speaking can sometimes be the most generous thing.
1: Does your play um, come down on one side or the other, or are you allowed to say? Is that a spoiler?
2: Um, I suppose we should say to contextualize it, it's a, it's a, an architectural competition between a man and a woman who are also lovers. And uh, they don't know that the other one is the competition, which always makes it really dramatic. Um, but I, I got really interested in um, Maya Lin, not even so much the Vietnam Memorial, although I think that's an incredible creation. But in the work she's been doing recently, and about five years ago, she did this incredible piece that was at the De Young. I don't know if you saw it, but was a its own kind of memorial to the California coastline. And it looked like undulating um, uh, sand dunes, but it was made out of little two-by-fours. It was just little wooden blocks arranged in such a way, and you could travel through it that you felt like you were walking through waves and walking through sand dunes, maybe walking through wheat It was incredibly beautiful and sort of mythic, and I couldn't figure out how she'd made it. But uh, So when I was writing this play, the woman eventually, um, in her empathy with the the young man whose father's been killed in this bus bombing, tries to make a memorial that looks like that, that looks like the body of a dead man lying in the sand, which is sort of a preposterous thing to build. It's not really a building, and it has very odd shape, and how do you do it? But that's the journey she goes on. So... um, in a sense, it's a, it's a structure, I don't know if it's a structure of silence, but it's a structure of, um, of non-intervention, you know, that is that allows something to exist and breathe in the um, grief that the site created.
1: It's an organic shape, right. perhaps. exactly. Speaking about odd shapes, we're sitting here in the Contemporary Jewish Museum, designed by Daniel Libeskind, and Kathy and I both got a chuckle out of the Liebeskind reference. So.
2: There are a lot of Liebeskind
0: jokes in this place. Yeah, it yeah, was pretty good. I think one was, please tell me it's not Liebeskind. Why the hell is it always Liebeskind? <laughs> 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 yeah, I as well was wondering, do you have a
2: special Liebeskind connection? Well, I love architecture. I mm-hmm. love this building. I love this museum. You know that. Um, and I've spent a lot of time in the Yud. The Yud is the soaring cube that is odd, asymmetrical, hard to figure out what you're meant to do with it. But it's a very magical space that kind of floats over the traffic of the Yerba Buena complex in this really interesting way. And we did a workshop of hire last year here at the museum in the Yud, and um, although it was a challenge because it's acoustically a little difficult up there, it was fantastic to be in this incredible piece of architecture, to think about um, architectural intervention. So, obviously, Lipskind is, is well-known internationally for being a famous Jewish architect who does memorials, particularly Holocaust memorials. This play is about a Jewish architect who designs memorials. He's probably always one step behind Lipskind, as most other architects are. Um, I'm really fascinated by, you know, so-called star architects, black cape architects, these, these guys who kind of swoop down and deliver something amazing and then fly off again. And, um, and how difficult it is for women to compete in that arena and why there's so few women's architects. And um, so people like Liebskin fascinate me, both his talent and the size of his ego. Um, And I watched him twice um, present the designs of the Contemporary Jewish Museum and with his wife standing by. And I thought it's an amazing thing to have Uh, that kind of ego to stand up and say, out of nothing, I will make this and it will cost this and it will take up that much space, which is something that seems to be much harder for women to do.
0: I was really struck by how you captured kind of this architecture ego, but, I mean, ego is certainly not limited to architecture. It's all over the art world. Is there something about architects in particular
2: that's different from, say, actors or directors or painters? Yes, because they are taking up public space. I mean, we in the theater do what we do, and God knows, yes, there are egos and insecurities, etc. But what is amazing to me about architecture is it is a collision. Talk about the space between. It's an incredible collision of art making and Commerce and of inspiration and engineering and the, the the client and the designer and these gaps the way that these things get negotiated is really fascinating i mean I, I went as I was preparing for this play to watch the uh, pitch process for the Trans Bay terminal down here in San Francisco, and Calatrava was the first one to pitch and he 's this spectacular Spaniard and uh, the other thing I learned about architecture, and, and maybe this is why Leapskin so successful because it's particularly good for Jewish architects, is that it's a, it's an art form of talking. Way before there is a real design on paper, there is a passionate person looking somebody else in the eye and saying, imagine this. So that's how the play starts, you know, with the actually the client saying, imagine, imagine the site. But it's a lot about that, about imagining something and persuading somebody to believe that what you imagine is buildable.
1: It's funny to think about um, being a theater director or an artistic director because you are on stage sculpting space and you are sculpting space in a way that creates a frame for people to suspend their disbelief and to believe in the characters and what they're doing. And I'm, I'm wondering as a director whether, I don't know, what parallels you see between directing a play and directing a building.
2: Well, what's interesting is the writing process is more like the architect the beginning of the architectural process, right? Because uh, architects start with what they call a gesture sketch, so that could be, you know, the famous Renzo Piano little swirl that turned into the Academy of Sciences on a napkin, they're famous for drawing on napkins. And the gap between the gesture the gesture sketch and the building is like the the journey from the first draft of a play to the production, right? And so the play writing process, and that's why I love it that it's W-R-I-G-H-T. It's like being a boatwright. It's a craft. How, obviously it's also about inspiration, but this play particular, how it's structured so that the thriller part of it and the relationship structure and the whole dynamic of the competition actually stands up is really complicated. So um, deciding sort of which scene followed which, who knew what, when, how to keep the play going long enough that you would believe that they were both working on the same project and were lovers and didn't suspect the other one. So it's a funny kind of architecture and you you build it, you write it, and then you watch a workshop and then you go back to the drawing board because you see that this scene didn't really lead to that or that scene's extraneous and here's a hole. And, right? and then at a certain point you hand it over to the director. So I never like to direct my own plays because I love the collaboration. And I think that someone needs to take your blueprint, which is really just a blueprint on the page, and build it. So the director's there to build it. Um, I've just come from a run-through, so I can sit with the script and I know what I imagined at every second, but it has to travel through the flesh and blood and ideas and heart and design of this group of people in the room. So somebody's created the set design and somebody's clothed them and somebody chose the music and and, and the actors choose their moments. And, and then the director sculpts the whole thing and builds out of your blueprint A structure, right? So in a lot of ways, it's very parallel. And just as with architecture, there are compromises every step of the way. Part of what makes it hard and interesting when it's your own play, which is why I don't like to direct my own work, is that you then have to give the creative team time to go on the same journey you went on writing it right? They can't get to the result till they've gone on that journey. And then they will get to where you got and maybe more. And the actors always know more about their characters than you will ever know, even though you wrote them, because it's in their bodies. So ultimately, even as a playwright, you have to ask them certain things. Does that work for you? What happened in that moment? What do you think about that? Because... um, Because it's in their bodies, and then they own it. And that's always the most amazing part of the rehearsal process, which is usually like at the end of the second week, when suddenly an actor you know becomes a character you've never met. And it just suddenly happens. And you Mm -hmm. watch it and think, it's sort of alchemy.
1: I wanted to bring up Beckett actually because I was thinking about this this speech and silence together when uh, when Bill Irwin was playing and now I can't remember the play five or six years ago when he was at ACT
2: was it a Beckett it
1: was Beckett text for nothing I think it was Those text for nothing text. yes mm-hmm. it was text for nothing uh-huh. um, and uh, he in the beginning he must have spent I, I don't remember how much time several minutes. Doing nothing but wandering around, and it was the most articulate mm. performance. And mm. I felt like I understood everything he was saying. And then he launches into the language. Right. right. So the speech and the silence collided for me at that moment.
2: Beckett is filled with silence. So you know, at the end of the first act of Waiting for Godot, Didi says to Gogo, "Let's go," and Gogo says, "Yes, we'll go." And then the stage direction is, "They don't move." And so then they just sit there, and you watch this silence in agony, and you think, they're not going to move. Nothing's going to happen. What's going to happen? And then the lights go to black. And then the lights come up for act two, and there they are again. <laughs> you know, it's... it's um And he does it all the time. We're about to do Endgame. And uh, that has um, amazing um, long diatribes and then moments of complete silence. Pinter is particularly brilliant this way. And sometimes in Pinter, it's when somebody is gobsmacked, you know, when they are suddenly shocked or suddenly aware that they just stop speaking. And it's terrifying. Goldberg in The Birthday Party says, because I believe that the world, because I believe that the world, because I believe that the world. And then he just stops because he realizes he has no idea what he believes about the world. He doesn't know what he feels about anything. He's so used to talking and he just stops. And all the air goes out of the room. So it's a great thing to play with, you know, because speech only exists in relation to silence and the other way around. I'm directing another play right now called Scorched, which is also a memory play about the Middle East. And one of the things that we've been talking a lot about in that rehearsal process is that when there has been trauma in a culture right like the holocaust or like the lebanese war which is this place scorched is about this this terrible civil war or like what the cambodians went through under the khmer rouge the next generation is often silent about that event and so the children Have to hear it some other way. They their parents didn't tell them. They like the internment camp, um, post internment camp generation, was never told by their parents what it was like to be in the camp because of the shame their parents felt and the silence that that entailed. And so, they had to learn it from reading books or newspapers or something else. It's sort of amazing, but the silence of trauma is a big thing in memory. It must be a particular
0: challenge to use one art form you're writing um, to describe another art form, maybe slightly outside your experience. Could you describe your process of preparation and study for that?
2: Well, I'm a real architecture junkie, I have to admit. So I have a lot of architect friends. Um, One in particular who's been a really good friend of mine since my freshman year at Stanford. And so whenever a new building goes up in town, he always walks me through it and tells me what he thinks. And, you know, just like we're all snarky about our own profession, the architects are totally snarky about each other's work. So he'll say, look at this mean little entrance. Look at this um, stair that doesn't flow. Look at whatever. Mm -hmm. It's just fascinating to go and watch and think. Um, So I just did a lot of looking and watching. Um, I have a terrific uh, architect on my board um, who's at SOM, so I've spent a lot of time right down the street at their offices, which I love because it's filled with maquettes, and I played with dollhouses all my life, so I love little buildings, so it's filled with things like that, and I like watching people work, so I I did a lot of that. Um, The hardest part, when you're actually writing the play, (laughs) I had to imagine what his building would look like. And what her building would look like, and just make it up in and try to, to in order to describe it. In order mm-hmm. to describe it, so I would try and draw it myself. What I thought her building was, and how his canted glass tower overlooking the Sea of Galilee might function, um, but the actors eventually have to draw it out themselves and figure out like what they think that building would look like. You know, so it's not like I have little scribbles in the script, but it was fun to try and imagine if I had to build this, what would it be?
0: Do you think a play could be a kind of memorial?
2: Well, I think that's a really good question. I think that there are many plays that actually do function that way. Mm -hmm. It's funny. The French call a theatrical performance, they call it representation, to to re-present something. As if to say there has been a lived experience, and what you're going to see on stage re-presents, recreates that experience. So in a sense, any play is actually a memorial, is, a, is a, a memory of something that had happened that feels so real when you see it, that you remember it. We did a, an interview last week at the JCC. Alan Jones, the ex-dean of Grace Cathedral, interviewed me. And um, the first thing he asked, it was so funny, because uh, there we were at the JCC, was, um, uh, is this a Jewish play? Um. And I knew I was supposed to answer yes, absolutely, because I was at the JCC. And, you know, I I really had to think about it because it really surprised me in writing the play that its concerns were so much about faith, which is not something I realized I had been thinking about. But this is one of the odd things about the writing process or any creative process, that when you start, your unconscious takes over and these things come up. And one of the things that I realized in writing it I had thought a lot about was a long conversation I had had with, sort of my closest friend, who's a very famous Jewish composer, David Lang, uh, who's much more religious than I am and uh, very serious about his practice of Judaism. And uh, so I've always felt inan- a totally inadequate Jew compared to David, which I am. Um, and I remember one time we had this conversation, and I said, you know, forgive me, but some of it, what you're doing seems so preposterous, the the eating prescriptions and all of that. And why really, David, you of all people, why? And he said, because it's difficult. Because it's difficult. It is not a spiritual leap for me. I didn't have a born again moment. I realized that this is something my ancestors had been doing for thousands of years. And so, A, I thought I should keep doing it because it's my only connection to my history is that exact behavior. It's not for me to question why that behavior existed. Obviously, it's not rational, but it is a connection. And the fact that you have to do it every day is difficult. And its difficulty is what is important. And then he wrote this really beautiful piece of music called How to Pray, um, which is about how difficult it is to pray and what is prayer. And this is something I, I thought about a lot in writing this, this piece. Michael's son is a very religious Jew, Um, in defiance of his father and his father, it really gets up his father's nose. He just thinks it's there to defy him and it annoys him and he doesn't see the point. And the son keeps saying, I don't see how you can design a memorial if you have no faith. Uh, He says, oh, please, I can't face religion at eight in the morning, have a bagel. You know, he doesn't want to talk about it. um, But he finally does actually go sit there by the galley and try to figure out what is this practice? What is the behavior that my son is doing? And if I could replicate the behavior, would I feel something different? And that's interesting to me, you know i um that that Judaism is a religion of um you know it is a practice as much as anything else and and it is also a religion of debate and I think that that's what I really love about it um is that it is the religion of the word and that people arguing with each other is their own form of religious practice, <laughs> you know, and that Talmudic um, conflict and debate and discussion has, and inquiry has always been centered around that, and that I realize for all of my lack of um, regular re- religious practice, that that was so inculcated in me as a child growing up, Of you know, that uh, that is my religion in a sense and culture. You know, my my mother's a Viennese refugee, and was that funny brand of sort of assimilated Ashkenazi Jews in Vienna, but very Jewish when she came to America. I mean, they lived in the Bronx, and everybody they lived with was um, a refugee. Um, and it wasn't that they talked about religion, but they grieved for the culture they had left, and that sense that culture was the religion you practiced, that that's what you did, that life was about listening to music and seeing paintings and reading literature and that that's what it was to be a human being. And that's why they were so devastated that they got kicked out of Germany thinking, but we are the most cultured people there are. They didn't quite see that coming. But you know, it's an interesting thing to think about that I realized writing it, there are a lot of ways to be Jewish, a lot of different ways.
1: I'm struck by what you said about uh, David Lang and his description of doing what his ancestors did. Uh, and about how the, kind of the transmission of his belief or his connection was through the body, mm-hmm. acting it out. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of like acting out this drama yeah. through history.
2: Yeah, it is. And that sometimes it's okay that you don't feel it. You know, this is the acting process. Sometimes an says, I just can't get there. I haven't felt it yet. And you have to do, sometimes you have to do something a lot before it comes to you, what it is, what it means It will fill itself up because it's a behavior that has been practiced for so many years. And it's hard to even tell why it's moving. I sit in this building and I think my favorite thing that ever happened in this museum was that woman who was the Torah scribe. I became totally obsessed with this. And I don't know why. It was just a woman writing letters, right? I found it unbelievably moving. And I guess it's because she was transcribing history. She was a woman who was trying to be part of um, I guess, pretty male history of that kind of task, but for 3,000 years. And there she was up there every at 1 o'clock every Wednesday. I would come and she'd gotten another page done. It was amazing.
1: Practice makes perfect.
2: Yeah, it was so moving to see. And that was her form of religion. It was like a prayer that she was writing that. And I have no idea what she feels in the rest of her life about it, but that was her prayer. Thank you, Carrie. Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you.